I found Frank Herbert's Dune um, <laughs> hiding in the back here, <laughs> like within arm's reach at eye level. Like it wasn't even hard for me to find. You didn't even have to get up out of the chair. <laughs> yes. You were destined to read this book. I will read it. And then if I get confused, I'm texting you. Yes. <laughs> oh, that was great. Okay. Yeah, that could be the cold open. Yes. Here we go. Welcome to Electric Enthusiasm, the podcast where we celebrate unironic enthusiasm. I'm Katie Cobalt, and I have a new microphone today. Ooh. <laughs> and my name is Alexander Kyov, and today I'm ready to come out of the closet. I'm coming out uh, as a nerd. Oh, baby, you were never in the closet for that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's probably true. It's probably true. But I, I may be the nerdiest nerd who ever nerded, and this episode will definitely, definitely demonstrate that. I, I feel like this is a podcast for nerds. Between you and me, that is our core demographic. That is who we are in the center of our souls. Very much so. so. Too true. Too true. So how does this work, Alex? <laughs> <laughs> in each episode, one of us will prepare a topic that they're super enthusiastic about and will do their level best to spread that enthusiasm to the other host and to you, the listener. Sometimes we have guests on who are super excited about something that we know nearly nothing about. We also have a moment of meta where we get enthusiastic about enthusiasm and talk a little bit about why enthusiasm matters and how to live a more enthusiastic life. And we want to hear what you're enthusiastic about. Visit our website, electricenthusiasm.com or our Instagram, at electricenthusiasm and tell us what you're excited about these days. Or you can even plain old send us an email at hello at electricenthusiasm.com. In this episode, our topic is Dune the novel. <laughs> uh, I'm so excited for this. Specifically the novel, correct? <laughs> Specifically the novel. Excellent. Yeah, we should say we're recording this on September 28th, 2021. Right now, the Dune movie is in cinemas, and yes, I did get to go see it. It's in some cinemas. Oh. Uh, I got to watch it a week ago here in Copenhagen. You got to watch it in Hong Kong, mm -hmm. but it's not yet out in the U.S. And I feel like this is only just the search for all of the time that a movie has premiered in the U.S., and then the rest of the world had to wait for it. I know! Ah! I'm, so, I'm so happy! I did not know that. That is delicious information to have. Yes. So if we time it just right, we can release this episode when it comes out in the US uh, <laughs> sometime in October, I believe. I have a strange relationship with Dune. My mother and my brother love it. I think you would love them. Um, mm -hmm. I <laughs> have vague memories. I think there was a movie before. This isn't the first Dune movie. No, no, there was one before. And we're very much going to talk about I that. I think I've seen that. If, if you don't remember a movie, did you actually watch it? If a tree falls uh -huh. in the forest and no one makes a sound, did it actually fall? Like, I have vague memories of sand, people with blue eyes, and big sandworm dudes. I've never read yes. the books. I just watched the new movie, and I'm very intrigued to ask you questions about the vibe of the book and the pacing of the mm -hmm. book. Because I want to know how well the movie and the book correlate on that front. Because I think it had a mm -hmm. very specific energy have very specific feeling and a very specific pace and i want to know more about the book yes. but i also it was fine i wasn't super into it <laughs> i'm coming into this episode relatively skeptical and so i'm very intrigued to see if you can get me as enthusiastic about dune as you are 
That'll be my goal to get you to rush out and buy the book <laughs> and read it. We'll see if I succeed in that. So just so I understand it correctly, your family took you to see the movie in Hong yes. Kong? Which continues a tradition of your family spoiling these topics yes. for us. Yes. yes, we had the whole Modesty Blaze thing lined up <laughs> and your mom spoiled that. And you were deliciously ignorant of the whole Dune universe and, and then they come in and spoil really? it. Really? I should stop telling my family about podcast topics <laughs> because they seem intent <laughs> on educating me before you get the chance to. <laughs> exactly. By the way, there will be no spoilers in this entire Ooh. podcast for neither the books or the movies. Okay. So if you haven't read the books or seen the movies, you're perfectly safe. We normally like to start with facts first here on the podcast. So what exactly should a person know about Dune the novel? Dune is the best-selling science fiction novel of all time. Um, it was written by the American author Frank Herbert and came out in 1965. That is over 50 years ago. But it contains themes and ideas that make it relevant to this day, possibly even more relevant today, given that two of the themes are ecological collapse and the dangers of following charismatic leaders <laughs> unquestioningly. <laughs> I I, it's sad that those are more relevant today. <laughs> it, it seems like we should have gone beyond yeah, we that. We really didn't learn that lesson from history, did we? We did mm. not. We are 20,000 years in the future, and humans have spread across the galaxy and, and populated countless planets. But society has become incredibly static. It is governed by a rigid class system and a very small number of powerful people and organizations. The central plot device in the story is the spice. In this time, the most precious substance in the universe is the spice melange. The spice extends life. The spice expands consciousness. The spice is vital to space travel. You may have heard this quote that he who controls the spice controls the world. The spice is incredibly important for many reasons. It has anti-aging properties. If you take spice, you age more slowly and people can live to be very, very old in this universe. However, it's also addictive. Once you've had spice, you need to take it for the rest of your life or you die in terrible, terrible pain. Huh. Okay. It's also a psychoactive drug. That I knew. It's trippy as fuck. <laughs> exactly. Finally, it's used in space travel. Every ship that travels between stars has a guild navigator. They can fold space, but only if they have access to spice. So the spice, also called melange, is absolutely central. And it cannot be produced synthetically. It can only be farmed in one place, which is the desert planet of Iraq. It's also known as Dune by the locals. Okay, let me get this straight. Spice. Mm -hmm. Need it for space yeah. travel. It's uh -huh. anti-aging. If you stop taking it, you die. In horrible, horrible pain. A horrible death will befall you. Uh-huh. 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 It's hallucinogenic. Uh -huh. And it has to be organically produced. Is that correct? Yes. This is a lot for one substance. Like there is no like comparative. I was just like, okay, so it's like space travel. So it's like fuel. Yeah, but you don't really smoke fuel to get high. Okay. There is no like parallel version in reality for spice. This stuff is like 
no. sparkly magic. <laughs> it is the, the central MacGuffin of the plot. Everybody wants to control it. I feel it. like the author of this book, he was like, uh, I'm assuming it's a he? It's a he? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Frank. I'm assuming yeah, Frank. this. the author of this book was like, I need to make something so freaking valuable. I'm going to give it every uh-huh. attribute in the world. <laughs> yes. Yes. That is the, the one central thing that everybody wants and everything in this universe revolves around it. Cool. Yeah. Our main character is Paul Atreides, who is 15 years old when the book starts. He is the only heir to the Atreides family. His dad is the Duke Leto Atreides, Duke of the very lush planet of Caladan. And his mother is the concubine Jessica Atreides. The Atreides family are ordered by the emperor to go take charge of Arrakis, where the spice is grown. This looks like a huge victory. But in keeping with everything that goes on in this universe, there are plans within plans within plans. It's a trap. They know it's a trap. But they have to do it anyway because the emperor has ordered it and the Atreides are the good guys. They follow an honor code that is very, very strict. For what I know about fantasy and sci-fi, this means they're going to (laughs) die. There are some serious Ned Stark vibes here, right? right? I'm like, this sounds like Ned Stark. They're going to (laughs) die. Again, no spoilers. No spoilers. <laughs> Just a hunch I have. Yes. And they are uh, they are taking over Arrakis from the Harkonnen family. And the Harkonnen family are the bad guys. They have been ruling Arrakis for 80 years and controlling spice production and making a ton of money off that. Now they're leaving the planet and the Atreides family comes in and takes over and has to try and survive all of the death traps left behind by the Harkonnen, all of the sabotage. They have to keep spice production flowing or the emperor will have an excellent excuse to just kick them out again. That's where the story begins. Cool. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. There's a lot of names. Also, I like that every other name, like the Harkonnen, Atreides, they're like very clearly fictional alien names. And then Paul. Hey, Paul. And then what's up? Paul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and maybe to make it easier to identify with him. Yeah, Who maybe. Knows, right? He's yeah. got like a very like average dude name. And I appreciate yes. that. Yes. Alex, why did you pick Dune the novel for your topic for this episode? First of all, it's a great book. It really is a great book. It's not the best book I've ever read, but it is definitely the book that has been with me the longest. Katie, are are you the kind of person who will read a book more than once? I feel very attacked right now, very personally (laughs) offended. How did you know? I am definitely that person. Probably the book that I've read the most times is A Long Way to a Small Angry Planet by Becky Uh, Chambers. That book is adorable. It is. It's so cute. And I think I've read it at least seven times. And and what makes you read it again? You know what's happening. I read it because it's nice to come back to that universe. It's lovely to come back to those characters. The second reading is the best reading in my in my in my books. The second reading is the best reading. Um I love coming back to like the world that I know. And also every time you read it again, there's a detail that you didn't quite notice the first time or you spot the theme that has appeared in this way now or something new unfolds for you, particularly if it's a book that's got a lot to it, which I imagine Dune is one of those. Yes. Dune has been with me for almost 40 years. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah. And here's how it happened. When I was 14, I was diagnosed with a thyroid cancer. And I had to go into uh, the hospital for an operation, obviously. So I brought books. I've, I've always loved science fiction. And one of the books I brought was Dune in the Danish translation. 
I don't know if you can imagine how this book hit me because I was 14, Paul is 15. Yeah. He's the hero going up against the very, very tough odds. I just loved that book. I didn't get all of it because I was only 14. Um, but I have since reread it uh, probably once or twice a year yeah. since then. And I still, I still discover things I've missed on all the previous readings. I must have read that book, I don't know, a good 50 times. And I still love it. Here's how much it meant to me. I have a master's degree in computer science from 1994. And this is a thesis that I wrote. And each chapter starts with an appropriate quote from the Dune novel. (laughs) So for instance, the introduction starts with the opening quote from Dune, which is, a beginning is the time for taking the most delicate care that the balances are correct. Mm. Yeah, right? I had to develop my own programming language. So chapter five that specifies this language has a quote that is, I operate a machine called language. It creaks and groans, but is mine own. (laughs) That's really lovely. Yeah. Here's the chapter on related work. And the quote is, if you focus your awareness only upon your own rightness, you invite the forces of opposition to overwhelm you. This is a common error. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So that book has been with me for a long time and it really means a lot to me. And as I said, I I originally read it in Danish. The Danish translation is really good. There's only one slight problem here, which is that uh, the the Danish word for dune is klit. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not childish. I didn't laugh at that. Nope. And in Danish, klit is indeed short for clitoris. As well, of course. Yeah. So that there's, there's a slight, that was a slight problem there. Do they actually use the word klit in the books? All the time. Fantastic. All the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the plan is called klit. Yeah. Yeah. What can you do? I mean, at least it's much easier to find. It's a whole planet. There, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all the men in the book can actually find it. Yeah. <laughs> Don't want sand there, though. Sorry. And then, of course, you have the the cover with this this sandworm on it, which is this this very penis-looking thing. Yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah, no, no. It's a great book and definitely worth a read. And, of course, it's extra relevant now with the Villeneuve movie out in some parts of the world. Not you yet, US. (laughs) Ha (laughs) ha. That's why I picked this topic and why I picked it now. Mm. Um, Should we talk about the movies? Yes, I, I'm very curious. Uh, I have vague memories, I think, of the first one. And I definitely saw mm-hmm. the second one. Because I haven't read the books. There was a lot of stuff in there that I was just going completely over my head. And I was like, cool, Aquaman's fighting. I like him. He's cool. <laughs> That's uh, Jason Momoa for those who haven't seen the movie yet. Because we keep, I don't know if you've noticed, we keep mentioning Game of Thrones. Yeah, we do. <laughs> this is like, to keep the Game of Thrones mentions going, Khal Drogo. Paul Drogo was in it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I kind of, I thought it was meh. Okay, that's reassuring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, in Denmark, we get the movies in English with Danish subtitles. Um, and there was one scene where Vladimir Harkonnen goes, my planet, my Arrakis, my Dune. Yeah. Of course, the Danish uh, subtitle is my planet, my Arrakis, my clit. <laughs> there, were, there were some sneakers. Interestingly, like, because I watched it in Hong Kong, we also had the Chinese subtitles at the bottom, which was yeah. absolutely hilarious when they were speaking Chinese. Because there's a moment yeah. where they talk to the doctor and they're speaking Mandarin. 
And so Ooh. then you had English subtitles on top of Cantonese subtitles while they're speaking Mandarin. And most people in the audience can understand the Mandarin. And so I was like, there's a lot of languages happening right now. <laughs> Actually, a central theme of the book is language. Mm -hmm. And we're going to come back to that. There's so much in the book, so much more in the book. The book is so much deeper and richer. Um, so I thought the, the new movie was meh, it's fine, I guess. I, Very pretty. There's a part of me that I don't want to watch it again. But I kind of do to count how many times we see Zendaya in slow motion turning back <laughs> towards camera. Because by the like 14th or 15th time, it wasn't dramatic anymore. It was just funny. Yeah, yeah. Also, a good chunk of the movie is spent on people giving each other meaningful glances. Yep. Yeah, like I think it's a good 20 minutes of the movie is people just looking. Yeah. The thing to remember is that it could have been worse. And that brings me to the 1984 Dune movie by David Lynch, which is honestly in the so bad it's good category. <laughs> for instance, a problem you face whenever you're adapting any novel for a movie is that in the novel, the author can tell you what a person is thinking, yeah. right? This is very dangerous, Paul thought. You can't really do that in a movie. Except that David Lynch does it anyway. <laughs> so what he'll do is that somebody will deliver their line and then that actor will just stand there motionless and then in voiceover will hear their thoughts spoken. That is just such a hilariously wow. inept yeah. way to show yeah. that. Uh, yeah, it's awful. The acting is terrible. And this is weird because he has Patrick Stewart in there. He has Max von Sydow. He has great, great actors. Huh. My favorite thing is, is that a lot of the lines are not spoken. They're declaimed <laughs> like Shakespearean <laughs> actors on stage. Yeah. It could have been even worse, though. <laughs> yeah, seriously. There were two previous attempts to film Dune. One in the 70s with a director called Yodorovsky. Yodor he admitted he'd never read the books. He didn't really care. No, no, yeah. I'm sorry. No, not allowed. Bad. <laughs> exactly. Not allowed. No, no, he just wanted to make the movie. His initial script draft was like 14 hours long. He ended up spending $2 million on pre-production, like design and that kind of thing. Um, that would have been so bad. And then just before David Lynch ended up making the movie, Ridley Scott was actually set to do it and was in pre-production until it, it ended up taking too long and he had to leave to go make a movie called Blade Runner. I don't know if you heard of that. Oh, one. yeah. Okay. I can, I can see why he left for that project. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the reason I'm actually kind of glad that the Ridley Scott version of Dune didn't happen is that they had written in an incestuous relationship between Paul and his mother. Bro, what? That is not in the book. It's not even hinted at in the book. Why the hell? I don't know. I'm really glad it didn't get made. I'm very glad that didn't happen in this world. Yes. Uh, we talked about shoehorned romances in one of the, one of oh, the previous yeah. episodes. This is, this is the ultimate shoehorned romance, right? Between yeah. a boy and his mom. <laughs> not necessary. Super not necessary. A, a, a friend of Frank Herbert talked to him right after he had read the script. And he asked, have you ever heard Frank Herbert bellow with rage? Oof. Yeah. 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 Yes. So let's talk about why the book is awesome. There are three main reasons why I think this, this book is so fantastic. First reason is how, just how unlikely the book even is. Dune is sort of the perfect storm of a, of a book. Frank Herbert's entire life 
led up to this. Nothing he wrote before or after is anywhere near as good. He wrote a lot of mediocre books before, a lot of mediocre <laughs> books after, and Dune just sticks out. So this is his magnus opus. Magnus opus? Magnus, a magnum opus. Magnum opus. Yeah, there we yeah, go. Yeah. I speak languages. You speak Latin. <laughs> um, Frank Herbert was the ultimate struggling artist. He was writing short stories, novels, and trying to get them published and failing over and over again. His family was living on, on the edge of poverty for decades. Yeah. He worked various jobs, mostly as a journalist. At, he spends five years making notes for this book. Whoa. Every time he gets an idea, that goes into a file. And finally, he starts writing it. Um, and he has a really hard time just finding time to write it because he also has to work as a journalist. So even just the fact that this got written is incredibly unlikely. Then he tries to get it published and 20 different publishers end up turning it down. Wow. Until finally, uh, a publishing company called Chilton agrees to publish it. And they have until now only published automotive repair manuals. <laughs> <laughs> The fact that it's written, highly unlikely. The fact that it comes out, highly unlikely. Yeah. Then it's out and nothing happens. Nobody really notices. It doesn't really sell. And reviewers, the few reviewers actually read it, they hate it. They think it's too long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They think it's too long. They think it's too complex. It only gets very, very bad reviews. After the book became popular, Frank Herbert got back at those reviewers. Try reading that. For years, Dad kept copies of bad reviews, and as Dune became more successful, he retaliated by reading the remarks of critics at science fiction conventions and writing conferences when he knew the authors of the pieces would be present. <gasps> oh, that's beautiful. That's like just dessert right there. Exactly. Exactly. I thought that was just a fun way to do that. This book might have disappeared into obscurity, but... It had two central themes, ecology and drug use, that made it very popular with the stoners in California at the time. Yeah. That's where it finally found an audience, with university students in California, with uh, stoners across the U.S. Word spread from there, and it became, like I said, best-selling science fiction book of all time. Wow. Thank yeah. you, stoners. Exactly. <laughs> by the way, uh, by the way, <laughs> those same stoners are also responsible for the popularity of another famous work of fiction, Lord of the Rings. That tracks. Yeah. And I was actually thinking this is reminding me of Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion, where if Frank had taken all those notes, turned it into a book, he would have had the Silmarillion version to Dune. Exactly. <laughs> Lord of the Rings and Dune are similar in the amazing amount of world building they have and how complex they are. We actually know what Tolkien thought of Dune. I, I need to know more. Tell me more. <laughs> yeah. There's an unsent letter from the Tolkien archives to somebody who has sent him a copy of Dune. And in that letter, he writes, I have read Dune. And in fact, I dislike Dune with some intensity. <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was a very British way to put it. Yeah, very, very passive aggressive. <laughs> yes. So mm. Tolkien, not a fan. Fortunately, many other people are. So the book gets 
popular. And I think one of the reasons why it, it gets so popular and certainly one of the reasons why I appreciate it is the writing. Because uh, the writing is really, really good. I have an example that I think you should read okay. uh, out loud. This is a scene from Jessica's viewpoint, so Paul's mother. They've arrived on Arrakis, which is this terrible desert planet where water is nowhere to be found. Everybody is incredibly focused on preserving not just water, but moisture. Mm. If this had been Stephen King, it would have been like, Jessica looked out on the planet, it was very dry. Yeah. <laughs> but Frank Herbert goes about this a little differently. She looked out at the Arakeen sunset, at the banked decks of color in the sky. Night was beginning to utter its shadows along the distant rocks and the dunes. Yet the heat persisted. Heat forced her thoughts onto water, and the observed fact that this whole people could be trained to be thirsty only at given times. Thirst. She could remember moonlit waves on Caladan throwing white robes over rocks, and the wind heavy with dampness. Now the breeze that fingered her robe seared the patches of exposed skin at cheeks and forehead. The new nose plugs irritated her she found herself overly conscious of the tube that trailed down across her face onto the suit, recovering her breath's moisture. Ooh. What do you think? I love this idea of throwing white robes over rocks of the... Like, that's a, such a beautiful way of thinking about waves. Um, it's, it's, it's poetic, but it's not uh, difficult, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. I like the way yes. the language is used. Yeah, it's nice. It's funny you mentioned that, that it's poetic because one of his techniques was actually to write a passage as a poem first mm -hmm. and then translate it into prose afterwards. That's what shines through here. Another one of his techniques, and I think you will appreciate this, was listening to music while he wrote, especially jazz music. Yay! Yay! His son, Brian Herbert, said that writing was like a jazz performance for him. He composed it as he went along. He could slow it down, speed it up, soften, intensify. Mm. Cool. We see that in this uh, passage, right? Yeah, it's definitely got a, a rhythm to it. I think that's the poetry coming through or maybe even the jazz music. It feels like there's a way it should be read and a way my brain has made it rhythmical. Yes. I actually think uh, the writing in Dune is, is vastly underrated. And one of the reasons why this is such a great book. So speaking of the rhythm, how is the rhythm? Is it is it a very fast-paced book? Is it very action-heavy or is it quite slow? It is both. Okay. It is both. At times, there will be time to really take in a scene and take in a character and exactly what's going on inside of their minds right now. Mm -hmm. And then at other times, it's just frantic, fast-paced action. Because the movie had such a strong sense of pace. And I was wondering if they took that from the books. Seeing this passage that you had me read, like there are those moments of slowing down and of like taking in the scene, as you put it. So I can see now maybe a little bit where the movie got its pacing from. Yes. And I think that the movie overemphasized the slowness. Yeah. Also because whenever there is a slow scene in the book, it's in service of the story. It's in service of the character descriptions. Uh, in my opinion, some of the, the slow scenes in the movie were just pretty. <laughs> I mean, and they were pretty, but they didn't really add anything beyond being pretty. Yeah, fair. In my, in my humble opinion. I'm inclined to agree with you there, Alex. Yes. 
if I had made the movie, which of course I didn't, and who am I to criticize Denis Villeneuve? Uh, but if I had made the movie, I would have spent about 20 minutes less on meaningful glances and 20 minutes more on, on all of the deep, amazing stuff mm -hmm. that the book has. Maybe cut two or three of the Zendaya slowdown, some emotion shots. Just two or three. <laughs> two or three, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you enjoyed hearing us talk about our enthusiasms, you can be enthusiastic and share it with your friends. You can help us get the word out about our new podcast. The, the third reason why the book is amazing, that this book is a, it's a deep son of a bitch. <laughs> but what's so interesting is that it can be read on multiple levels. So when I was 14, for me, it was a straight up hero story. Mm. Here's Paul, here are the odds that he's up against, and, and here's what happens. When I read it now, I can see that it's very much not that. It's much deeper, and, and Paul is not the hero. He's certainly the main character, but he's not the hero yeah. here. It's also an amazing example of world building. So this is a book that has maps. It has a glossary. It has actual appendices <laughs> uh, that, that go deeper into some of the topics that are not in the story. So here's an appendix on the ecology of Dune. Here's wow. an appendix on the history and religion of this universe that we're in. And all of this really makes the world richer and more full. This is the five years of research showing. Yeah. Because all of this is based on Frank Herbert's work as a journalist in the real world. It seems so real. And there are themes like politics, ecology, technology, language, genetics, psychology, sociology, history, religion, and philosophy. Mm. All of that is interwoven and none of that is gratuitous. It's all presented on top of a really fascinating, fast-paced story. Yeah, cool. Yeah. There is another passage that I'd like you to read that I think illustrates this perfectly. The Atreides family has arrived on Arrakis. They need to form alliances and relationships with the local powerful people. So they have invited a lot of those to a banquet they absolutely need to figure out who can they rely on, who are Harkonnen agents, who will betray them if they get a chance. That's why this dinner is so crucial. In this scene, the Duke Leto is inspecting the banquet room to see if everything is as it should be. So, uh, quote two, please, Katie. The classic central chandelier remained unlighted and its chain twisted upwards into the shadows where the mechanisms of the poison snooper had been concealed. Ooh, poison. Yeah. Sneaky. Pausing in the doorway to inspect the arrangements, the Duke thought about the poison snooper and what it might signify in his society. All of a pattern, he thought. You can plumb us by our language, the precise and delicate delineations for ways to administer treacherous death. Will someone try the chow marquee tonight? Poison in the drink? Or the chow mass, poison in the food. Ooh. Ooh. Very creepy. Yeah. So based on that, what do you think a poison snooper is? I, I, it, I, in my head, it's like a poison sniper. Like there's some sort of poison mechanism hiding somewhere that he can unleash upon his guests, which oh, feels yeah. terrifying. Yeah, no, it's actually the opposite. Oh, excellent. So the, the, yeah, the poison snooper is a poison detector. <gasps> uh, yeah, okay, uh, that makes sense. To snoop, yes. Yeah. In just this short passage, we learn so much about the society mm -hmm. that they live in, right? Yeah. 
Um, so there's technology. There's a poison snooper that can detect various toxins, right? Mm. Society. We apparently live in a society where where assassination by poison is perfectly normal. Yeah. And something that happens so regularly that everybody needs to have poison snoopers installed over their dinner table. Wow. We learn something about their language. Right? Yeah. Sorry, I'm reading. As you're chatting, I'm reading the quote. <laughs> yeah. 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 So we learned something about their language. Poisoning is so common that there are words for different kinds of poisons. There's the chormurki that goes in the... Drinks. And chormas that goes in the food, yeah. right? We're learning about the Duke and how he sees the world. Mm. This is an example of how deep the writing goes and how well these ideas are presented, not just as ideas, but as integral parts of the story. Mm. It's, it's really interesting. Okay, in that single passage, as you pointed out, there is so much depth to it. And now that you've pointed that out to me, because it's out of context, I needed that extra assistance there. Now I'm reading it again. I'm like, oh, this makes it's I can see what you mean about the world building now. It makes more sense now. Yes. And that's why this book is still relevant after 50 years. Mm. How long is it? <laughs> The paperback version is a good 700 pages. Wow, okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's there's a lot of story there. Yeah. Wow. Also, you, you're really putting my seven reads of the Becky Chambers novel to shame here, mate. <laughs> but in my defense, I haven't been on the planet long enough for 40 years. <laughs> no, I have a head start on you there. I don't think that novel has even been out. No. Uh, when did it come, come on? I've Google. <laughs> Yeah. Um, sure, that's good enough. 2014. So seven years, once a year. That sounds about right. We'll talk in 33 years, <laughs> Katie, and see if you've made it to 50. I think that'll probably be right. <laughs> yeah. So this, this society has so much poisoning going on that they have different words for different kinds of poisons, which reminded me, of course, of the, the whole uh, trope of, you know, in Inuit languages, they have 50 words for yeah. snow. Ever heard yeah. Of that? Yeah. And that turns out not to be true. No, it's just descriptive words for snow. It's like like wet exactly. snow, dry snow, fluffy snow. It's like German. The longest words in German aren't actually separate words. They're just like words squished together. Exactly. So the next time you hear somebody say that, you can say, Well, actually. Mm. Well, actually. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All righty. So, Katie. What do you think now of Dune the novel? Have I convinced you to actually read it? Tentatively. Okay. <laughs> I'm still trying to find Modesty Blaze because I don't know if you realize yeah. this, but Hong Kong English bookstores don't necessarily include books from the 60s in English. So mm -hmm. I, so Modesty Blaze still is uh, to be read. And like you said, there's no ebooks. I'm assuming there's an ebook of Dune or probably a copy yes. of it somewhere in the house I'm currently living. <laughs> Given your family's love for the story, there's got to be a Dune novel yeah. somewhere. So the likelihood of me reading this book is a lot higher than Modesty Blaze because I think it's going to be more accessible. Five minutes later. So, dear listeners, I am currently sitting in my mother's study and behind me there are two bookshelves. There are some Dorothy L. Slayer. There's lots of Isaac Asimov, his entire Game of Thrones series. But I looked into the corner where there are some older, more yellowing gray books. And, oh wow, she has like first editions of like Lord of the Rings here. Wow. I found 
Frank Herbert's Dune um, <laughs> hiding in the back here. <laughs> like within arm's reach at eye level. Like it wasn't even hard for me to find. I don't have an excuse now, do I? You didn't even have to get up out of the chair. No. You reached out a hand and there it was lurking in the background. This is clearly a message from the fates. Uh, yes. You were destined to read this book. I have no option. I will read it. And then if I get confused, I'm texting you. Yes. <laughs> Oh, that was great. Okay. We are going to share some links with the show notes for this episode. But obviously, I mean, read the novel, right? It is that good and so much richer and deeper and interesting and fascinating and well thought out compared to the movie. You could also, if you really want to geek out on this, you could read Brian Herbert's, uh, Frank Herbert's son's biography on his dad. But that's only for the seriously committed uh, fans. So that's you. <laughs> like my, that myself, <laughs> Yes. We are going to include links to a Guardian article called Dune 50 Years On, How a Science Fiction Novel Changed the World, and a YouTube video called What Makes Dune's Writing Good that goes into a little more detail than we did here. So absolutely look at that as well. But most of all, read the novel. It is freaking amazing. Oh my God, I hope so much that you enjoyed sharing my enthusiasm <laughs> for Dune the novel. Uh, have you read it? Have you read it more or less than 50 times? Do you have any questions or did we leave out something awesome about the world of Paul Atreides? Go to our website or Instagram at Electric Enthusiasm and leave us a comment. I'm actually super curious. Specifically, leave us a comment with your book that you've read over and over again. So we know Alex's is Dune. We know mine is A Long Way to Small Angry Planet. What's yours? Ooh, good one. In today's moment of meta, we are going to be looking at the psychological concept of flow state. We think this is a really nice way of thinking about enthusiasm in action. It was named by psychologist Mikhaili Csikszentmihalyi in 1975, and it has been widely referred to across a variety of different fields, including dance education. Because that's how I heard all about this idea of how to achieve flow state in the classroom. Have you ever had one of those experiences where you've just like looked up and you're like, oh, holy crap, how is it already 8 p.m.? So you want to have intense focus concentration in the present moment. You want to have them aware of what they're doing, but also being active and doing things. They need to lose sense of time, right? And it needs to be intrinsically rewarding. And I want everyone in that classroom as well to have a sense of personal control and agency over what they are doing. And these are the uh, six factors of experiencing flow. And as an instructor, that's one of the things I was always trying to achieve in my classes. Alex, I'm curious, have you ever experienced flow state before? Oh, all the time. I love that state. It feels amazing to be so absorbed in something that you enjoy doing that, that time and space just disappeared and you're completely present in the moment. Swing dancing is definitely one of those things. A really hard workout is another one of those. Oh, yeah, because you do CrossFit, right? Ex ex <laughs> How did you know? Have I mentioned it once or twice before? I don't know. I've never heard of it before, right? <laughs> yeah, just spending time with friends, you know, a, a nice, cozy dinner or brunch with friends where you don't have to be anything except yourself and you can just, you know, the conversation is yeah. flowing. That, that, kind of, that, that can be a very yeah. flowy experience. Uh, that definitely happens with, uh, to me with Oreski, my dance partner. All of a sudden we look up and we're like, oh, it's 6 a.m. We spent the whole night chatting. Whoops. 
But as an instructor, one of the things that I'm always trying to do is get this flow state going. And I found the best combination of those factors that you need to have is this idea of the agency of the student, right? So if you're ever trying to achieve flow state or if you're an instructor trying to achieve flow state in your classroom, if you're always feeding information and you're always giving tasks and very specific instructions, it makes time very real. It makes that you're very aware of this is the time it is now, this is how long this is taking, and you never have the opportunity to engross yourself as an individual in that action, in that activity. The thing that I'm always trying to do in my classroom is give my students as much agency as possible, give them enough understanding they can get on with it themselves. And that's often those classes where you have a little bit extra time, you have a little bit of opportunity to go into that detail at the beginning, and then just let the students explore the concepts and explore the ideas behind the dance technique you're working on that particular class. And those are the times where you're like, oh, I'm so sorry, guys, we're out of time. And everyone's like, wait, what? No, what? (laughs) And that's when I know I've taught a great flow class. Yes. And I think agency is is hugely important in that people are given the Mm. chance to create their own experience. A way to tie this back to enthusiasm is also to say that you can't really force anybody to be enthusiastic about a thing. You can present it and then they can decide whether or not to be enthusiastic about it. But you can't make somebody else like something that you like. Goes back to, what was it? Rule number two, which is it's all about the framing. If Mm -hmm. you present it enthusiastically and excitedly, that's infectious. And that's going to help people get on board with whatever you're talking about in that class. That's how you get people excited about anything. It all comes back to enthusiasm, guys. Be enthusiastic. It really does. Be enthusiastic. Find your flow. Find your groove. Present your ideas enthusiastically. And everything becomes a little bit easier and a little bit more wonderful. Beautiful. I also think reading, for me, is a very flow state thing. I have definitely done the thing where all of a sudden it is now the morning. And I did not sleep the entire night because I was reading a book. Yes. And that's what Dune does to me. Even even after your 51st read. <laughs> it's, it's insane. It's just that good. Please visit our website, electricenthusiasm.com, or find us on Instagram, at electricenthusiasm, to discover more episodes or to leave a comment. And now, dear listener, go and spice up your life. Because <laughs> now it's a Spice Girls reference as well. <laughs> Yes, beautiful. 